hello. Yeah? Well, I am from the back hills of uh, Tennessee, but uh, going back in April to look at some property down there, so we're excited about that. But it was about five years ago, and Heather and I were already in our mid-40s, believe it or not, and I was at work, and we worked 48-hour shifts at our work, so it was the first day I'd gotten there, and in the afternoon, I get a phone call, not on my cell phone, on the station phone, and I answer the phone, and it's Heather on the other end of the phone, and she's crying, and I'm not talking a normal girl cry, I'm talking she's crying hysterically, and uh, I thought, at the time, I had a, a, a high school daughter and a, and a junior high son, and I thought for sure something had happened to one of them. I was terrified, and I go, what's going on? And uh, she goes, hey, hi, honey, and I said, what's up? And she goes, I just went to the beach with Kim, and... Um, I told her I thought I might be pregnant. And she, she told me I should stop and get a pregnancy test on the way home. And I did, and it came back positive. <laughs> to which I said, those things are fraud. You can't trust them. <laughs> I later found out they're like 99% accurate. I thought it was 50-50, but uh, I was way off. Um, so I said, you know, those are fraud. I don't believe it. I said, uh, listen, uh, no way. I said, make an appointment with Dr. Thompson and uh, go get some blood work, something more definitive done. You can't trust those things. You're not pregnant. She goes, okay, I'll make an appointment for tomorrow. So she did. So that night, didn't lose a wink of sleep at work, you know, went, slept like a baby, woke up the next day. Her appointment was like at nine. So this time the phone rings at 10 o'clock and she's not crying. She's chipper. And I go, hey, honey. She goes, hey. I go, um, how'd your appointment go? She goes, it went really good. I go, what Dr. Thompson say? She goes, he said we're pregnant. And then I started crying, and I was like, uh, I started doing the math in my head, going, hey, little boy, is this your grandpa? No, he's my dad. And, you know, and uh, I'm going, oh, my goodness. I go, wow. And I was, remember putting my uniform shirt on, and I got the phone right here. And the first time in my life, I remember trembling so bad I couldn't get the buttons in my shirt. And, uh, but just because I didn't believe it was true, it was true. I have a picture here to prove it. There he is, right there, right? And uh, it's true, he's four years old this month. And so, uh, wow, what a surprise. But the point is, just because you don't believe something's true doesn't necessarily mean that it's not. Tonight we're going to see in our passage a group of men called the Sadducees. There's several things that they don't believe is true, and we're going to look at them here in a second. But Jesus is going to show them, just because you don't believe it doesn't make it any less true. And let me show you what I'm talking about. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 20, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27, Luke 20, 27. By the way, we have been asked several times if we're uh, Josiah's grandparents. That's a true statement. So uh, it's always an interesting and awkward conversation when we say no, that we're his parents. So Luke 20, beginning verse 27 says this, says there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, they don't believe it. And they asked them a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, hypothetically. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Therefore, in this so-called resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, 
But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels. Remember the word angels. We'll come back to that. They're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The resurrection's real, guys. But that the dead are raised, here's proof. You guys want to quote a little Moses? Here's some Moses for you. Even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. And with that, let's pray. Hey, God, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for this uh, timely passage. And God, we just pray that you would teach us the importance of knowing your word, God, so that we're not found to be like the Sadducees and, and, and we don't believe things that are, that are real and that your word clearly states that are real. And we pray if there's anybody here, God, um, that doesn't know you tonight, that they might see their need for you and they might come to know you. And uh, you begin to speak to them and show them how much you love them, how good you are to them, God, that you want to see them saved. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Look, look, look again at our passage back in verse 27. It says, there came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. If you're going, I've seen that passage a bunch. I've seen th these guys mentioned several times in the New Testament, these Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? Well, instead of me explaining it, I got a little video here. It's only about a minute long, so if you want to watch this with me, this will explain who the Sadducees were, and we'll have a better, better handle on what was going on in the time of Christ. <clears throat> who were the Sadducees and the Pharisees? We're going to answer that question. The Gospels referred often to Sadducees and Pharisees, as Jesus was in constant conflict with them. Together they comprised the ruling class or political classes of Israel. They share many similarities, but there are important differences between them as well. The Sadducees. During the time of Christ and the New Testament era, the Sadducees were aristocrats. They tended to be wealthy and held powerful positions, including the majority of the 70 seats of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. They worked hard to keep the peace by agreeing with the decisions of Rome, and they seemed to be more concerned with politics than religion. Because of this, they did not relate well to the common man, nor were they well liked. The Sadducees preserved the authority of the written word of God. While they could be commended for this, they held beliefs that definitely contradict scripture. They were extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. They denied any resurrection of the dead. They denied any afterlife, holding that the soul perished to death and therefore denying any penalty or reward after the earthly life. They denied any existence of a spiritual world, including angels and demons. The Sadducees ceased to exist in AD 70 since this party existed because of their political and priestly ties. When Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, the Sadducees were also destroyed. There you go. A little brief handle on who the Sadducees were. And our passage in Luke 20 confirms what the video said about the Sadducees not believing in the resurrection. But also says they don't believe in angels or demons. And you're going, well, where's the proof text for that? Where in the Bible does it say they didn't believe in angels or demons or afterlife or all that stuff? Um, I just put up here on the screen, Acts 23, verse 8 says this. There it is. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel or angels, nor spirit, spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So just because they didn't believe it in angels, in demons, in an afterlife, in a resurrection, didn't make it any less true. And Jesus isn't going to let them get away with this nonsense way that they're thinking. He's going to call them out. Turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. I'll show you what I'm talking about. 
Mark chapter 12. It's the parallel passage for what we just read in Luke 20. But Mark's going to include a couple things that, that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, left out. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. says this. You're going to recognize the story right away because it says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, same as we just read. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaves a wife, but no child that must take up his wife, and so forth. Go down to verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be for the seven Hatteras wife? And look at verse 24. This is something that Luke didn't say, but I love what Mark says here. Jesus said to them, quote, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Those angels you guys don't believe in, they're real. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And here it is, you are quite wrong. I looked at the word for quite wrong. It doesn't mean, yeah, you guys are a little bit off. You need to, you know, tighten some things up. It means you're way off. You're extremely off. You're not even close to the truth. But what an indictment in verse 24 when he says, remember, some of these guys served as chief priests from time to time, some of these, these Sadducees. That would be like the senior pastor of the church. And it says, is this not the reason you're wrong? Jesus says, why? Why are you wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You don't know your Bible. And I think the two go hand in hand, not knowing the scriptures and the power of God. The power of God in the context is the power of God to be able to raise the dead. The reason you don't believe that is because you don't know what the Bible says about God raising the dead. And you should. You're Sadducees. Some of you guys are chief priests. You should know this stuff. Matter of fact, there's a couple passages we're going to look at real quick that talk about Old Testament passages. So they would have had this. Remember, they only had the Old Testament at the time. They didn't have the New Testament yet. But they did have the Old Testament. They should have known these passages. Anybody think Daniel's an important book? Major prophet, right? So the Sadducees have known the book of Daniel? Sure, they should have known. Daniel 12, 2, as it refers to the, the uh, resurrection, says this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, that's a euphemism for death, many of those who are dead, shall awake, they shall rise, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We'll come back to that part in a little bit, but the point being clearly describes the resurrection. How about Isaiah? Important book, major prophet. Should the Sadducees have known the book of Isaiah? Absolutely they should. Isaiah 26, 19, also up here on the screen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. That sounds like resurrection to me. You who dwell in the dust Awake and sing for joy. Not only are you alive, you got a voice, you can sing. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Proof positive. That's just two other passages in the Old Testament that talk about the resurrection is a real deal, and you should know it. What about angels? They didn't believe in angels either. We read that from Acts chapter uh, 24. They didn't believe in angels. Any Old Testament pa passages that prove the existence of angels? There's a lot. How many read the DBR yesterday? If you're new to our church, DBR is the daily Bible reading. How many of you guys read the DBR yesterday, the daily Bible reading? Read about Balaam, right, his donkey. Do you remember the story? Balaam's going along with his donkey. Balaam's a prophet for hire, not a good guy. And he's walking along down a road, and all of a sudden the donkey, it's a girl donkey, by the way, if you ever pay Bible trivia, if the donkey's a boy or a girl, it's a girl donkey, the Bible says, um, going down the road. And the donkey sees an angel with a sword drawn, and so the donkey goes, I don't want any part of this, and wanders off into the field. Balaam starts beating the donkey to get back on the road. They go a little bit further. They're in a vineyard. There's a wall on both sides. 
donkey sees the angel again with a sword drawn. He says, this is not good, trying to get away, but he's got walls on both sides, so he starts crushing Balaam's leg up against the, uh, up against the wall. Balaam starts beating his donkey again. A little bit further, they go up to some place where they can't even turn around, the Bible says. They have nowhere to go, so they, the donkey sees him and just gives up and just falls down on the ground. Balaam starts beating him again. <clears throat> the donkey starts talking to Balaam. You know, and the, the weird thing is Balaam starts talking back without any question. You know, it's weird, weird. But the angel says, listen, hey, what you're doing, Balaam, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. What you're doing is not good. Matter of fact, you should be thankful for this donkey because if the donkey wouldn't have seen me and turned away, I would have killed you and I would have let her live. But there's a proof of an angel right there in the Bible. We just read it yesterday. That was Numbers 22 if you want to look that up later. Numbers chapter 22. How about Daniel in the lion's den? Remember that when King Darius or Darius, however you want to say it, reluctantly had Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Couldn't sleep all night. He gets there early in the morning and he says, he yells down into the den, hey, Daniel, has the God whom you serve continually been able to save you from the lions? To which Daniel replied, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the lion's mouths. There's over, angels are mentioned over 108 times in the Old Testament, and yet the Sadducees say they don't believe in angels. So my question is, <clears throat> what about you and me? Would Jesus look at us and based on what we say we believe or what we say we don't believe and tell us that we're wrong because we don't know the scriptures or the power of God? We'll come back to that in a little bit, but a couple of different movements with so-called Christian movements, I use that term very loosely, that Jesus would look at their leaders and emphatically tell them, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. I'm going to talk about a couple of these movements. One of them is the prosperity gospel. You guys have heard of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel? It's not gospel at all because gospel means good news and this isn't good news. I'll just give you a definition that I pulled up from the internet, what this theology is all about. It says this, quote, prosperity theology is a religious belief of some Christians who hold that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them. Let me read that again. It's a religious belief of some Christians who hold that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them. In other words, God wants you to be rich and he wants you to be healthy, presumably all the time. <clears throat> My question is, is that biblical? Well, it's true that there were people mentioned in the Bible who were rich and some that were seemingly in good health. It's never a guarantee. In fact, we have people in our church right now just read the weekly prayer requests, not just the Thrive prayer requests, although we read those too and pray for those too. Just the church at large comes out every week with prayer requests. We have people in our church right now that are dying of cancer. We have someone in our church right now that was in a horrific biking accident over a month ago, and now they're in rehab in the hospital, broke their neck, and they haven't been home since as they're trying to rehab and get back to health. We have someone in Thrive that had to rush their son to the hospital this week because he was having seizures. <clears throat> I don't know every single person on the prayer list when I pray over the, over the prayer list, but I know some. And, and the people that I know, I know although they're experiencing unimaginable physical trials right now, I know this too, that they're clinging to Christ and to his promises. Not the promise that they'll necessarily be healed, because sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't, but the promise that God will never leave them or forsake them in the midst of their trial. That's the promise of God. That's the health part of the health and wealth gospel. What about the wealth part? If you ascribe to this type of prosperity gospel, maybe because of the way you were brought up or the church you came up in or you sat under, uh, under this teaching, um, 
you might be sitting there in your small group, you know another couple who's doing really well financially, and you see their Instagram post, and there they are on another vacation in some tropical destination, or they're in Europe, or, you know, they're there with their picture of them with their new car, hashtag blessed, right? And, uh, <clears throat> and you're thinking, uh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not being lazy. I'm working as hard as I can. I'm really, really trying to work really hard, and yet, in spite of that, we're living paycheck to paycheck, or worse yet, we, we're not even paycheck to paycheck. We can't even make ends meet. And, and maybe because of the way you're brought up, you're thinking, is it because I lack faith? Because I've been told if I just had enough faith, then this stuff would all take care of itself. If that describes you tonight, I want to encourage you with a passage out of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. You don't have to look it up. I'll just read it to you. You might want to just jot that down. Remember, they lived in an agrarian society back there, so agriculture was everything to them and livestock and all that. So let me read this to you. See if you can modernize it for your own life. He says this, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, no, that's not good, they didn't have any figs, but it gets worse. He says, nor fruit be on the vine, that's no good, no grapes, no, no grape juice, no wine, all the stuff they had back then. The produce of the olive fail, that's not good because they used olives and olive oil in a lot of things back then. Then it gets really bad, and the fields yield no food. And I know exactly what that's like because I grew up part of my life on a farm in South Carolina, and we had fields, 200 acres of them, and we grew food. We grew green beans, string beans, corn, you name it, we grew it. And I can't imagine going out there and there being no food. Now we go to a grocery store. They didn't have that opportunity. If there was no, no um, food in the field, that's not a good day. But it gets worse. It says, even though the flock be cut off from the fold. The fold is the, the pen where they keep the sheep, right? So I go out and look, and there's no sheep in the, in the sheep pen. Like you go out to your garage, there's no car in it. Or what do they use sheep for? Obviously, there's not going to be any lamb chops, but they use sheep also for the wool to make clothes. You're looking around, you're going, oh, my girl in my small group, they, they're shopping at Nordstrom's, and I, I'm not shopping at Nordstrom. It goes on. It gets worse. Like I said, no flock in the, in the, in the fold, and no herd in the stalls, no, no cows. So if you're meat eaters, no steaks. And my friend, I know that her husband takes her out to Ruth Chris and Fleming's and all those nice places, and I'm lucky if we go to the Sizzler, you know, and not put down the Sizzler, I'm just saying. It's not Ruth Chris. It's not. And, uh, <clears throat> no cows, no milk. It's a bad situation. But I love what Habakkuk says. Instead of cursing God, instead of wondering, maybe it's just because I don't have enough faith. This is assuming you're working hard and it's not due to laziness, right? He says this, in spite of all of that stuff, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. Amen. So like Jesus did with the Sadducees, Jesus would tell the purveyors of this prosperity gospel, you are quite wrong. You're extremely wrong. You're way off. It's not how it works. So that's the first so-called Christian movement. The second one is just as bad, if not worse. Jesus would have no problem telling them that they're wrong because they don't know the scriptures. It's, it's what's called the emerging church movement. You guys heard of the emerging? How many of you heard of the emergent church? Anybody heard of that? It's not good. There, there are numerous leaders within this, in this movement, uh, men who call themselves pastors, who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, and some even deny the existence of a literal hell. One such pastor, and I use that term very loosely because pastor means shepherd, and this guy's not a shepherd at all. If anything, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He at one time was the founding pastor of Mars Hill, catch this, Mars Hill Bible Church. Mars Hill Bible Church. It's back in Michigan. He had one of the fastest growing churches in America until he stepped down in 2012. Now he goes on speaking tours to sold-out arenas, and... Uh, uh, 
man by the name of Rob Bell, and right now you're going, oh, you're not supposed to call people out by name from the pulpit. That's not right. I've been reprimanded that before from somebody in Thrive for that before for calling somebody out. And if you're wondering why I did and I called him out by name, I'm just following in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, who had no problem naming names when it came to enemies of the gospel. Let me give you an example. I'll just read it to you. 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul said this. He said, quote, Alexander, and if you're wondering which Alexander, it was Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And speaking of great harm, Rob Bell and men like Rob Bell have done as much harm to the cause of Christ and his word as anyone in our generation. I got another video I'm going to show you right now. Um, Rob Bell's going to be on the Oprah show. He's going to address the topic of homosexuality. It could have been any sin, but that's the one he's addressing in this particular video. But listen to how he disparages the church and the word of God, and then we'll talk about it. About a minute and a half. Marriage, gay and straight, is a gift to the world because the world needs more, not less, love, fidelity, commitment, devotion, and sacrifice. I think it's great that you all made a conscious choice to include gay marriage in here. Absolutely. Yeah, why? Because one of the oldest aches in the bones of humanity is loneliness. I mean, it's one of the things that goes way, way back. Loneliness is not good for the world. And so, whoever you are, gay or straight, it is totally normal, natural, and healthy to want somebody to go through life with. It's, it's central to our humanity. Yeah. We want someone to go on the journey with. When is the church going to get that? We're close, I, I think. think it's evolving. I think mm -hmm. it's... Lots of people are already there. We think it's inevitable, and it's, we're moments. A moment away, away from the church yeah, accepting it. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Because... As soon as you meet someone, and most of the time when people have resistance to this, and I say you, to them, you, you think we're moments away. I think culture is already there, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and coworkers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life with someone. pastor of one of the largest fasting-growing churches in America until he stepped down in 2012. He said, let me read you a couple quotes from the video there. He said, quote, the, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant. Hey, Pastor Rob, are you talking about the church that Jesus promised to build himself and that even the gates of hell would not prevail against it? Are you talking about that church being irrelevant? Because to Jesus, it's not irrelevant. Matter of fact, he cherishes it and he loves it and he's promised to build it. The church isn't irrelevant. It never will be. It's the bride of Christ. He goes on to say this, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant, quote, when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. Since the context of the, the, the message there was homosexuality, Pastor Rob, do you mean letters from 2,000 years ago, like the one that Paul penned to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, when he says, don't be deceived, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God? You mean when they quote letters like that as their best defense or Romans chapter 1? The Word of God, the Bible will always be our best defense. The very first Bible verse I ever learned was Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 which says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. It stood 2,000 years ago, it stands today and it will stand 2,000 years from now. 
Rob Bell, you're quite wrong, Jesus would say to him. The prosperity gospel, the emergent church, any movement like that, they're counterfeits. And speaking of counterfeits and counterfeiting, since we've just heard a few quotes from a bad pastor, let me give you a quote from a good pastor. John MacArthur, in his book, Reckless Faith, says this, and talking about counterfeit money, he says this, federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. They study genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing, and then when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. See where we're going with this? In the same way, the only way we're going to recognize counterfeit gospels is by studying the real thing. So as a point of application, how's that going for you? How's that going for me? How well do you know the scriptures? I want us all to avoid what Paul spoke of in Ephesians 4.14. It's up here on the screen for you. It says this, so that we as believers may no longer be children, immature in the faith, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Some of the video we just saw. My question is, are you tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? You go, what are you talking about practically? What does that look like? Well, for example, there's some recent things that are just cultural things. You know, the, the shack. I had a believer come into my work the other day. Oh, have you seen the shack? It's so good. I'd never heard of it at the time. I go, no, what's it about? So I look it up. The shack portrays God and the Holy Spirit as women. That's blasphemous. You got Christians flocking to this. Not all, but some Christians flocking to see that stuff and to read that stuff. Speaking of Rob Bell, books like Love Wins, where at the end of the day, he says that the love of God's going to win everybody over. Everybody will be in heaven. It's fine. It's universalism. You know, I assume he means guys like Adolf Hitler too, right? Or we've already talked about God wants me to be healthy and rich. Movies like Heaven is for Real. When he, he goes to heaven and comes back and he describes what it was like when Paul told the Corinthians, he says, when I was caught up to the third heaven, it was unlawful for me to talk about the things that I saw. I'm not allowed to talk about it. So Paul can't, but you can. I'm going to go with, again, rest on what Scripture said instead of what some little boy or some gal or some man or whoever that said they'd been to heaven and came back and this is what it's like. We don't want to be tossed and fro by every wind of doctrine. It's time for us to grow up. And speaking of children and speaking of growing up, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning of verse 11. Hebrews 5.11. Writer of Hebrews says this. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God or the word of God. You need milk, not solid food, not meat. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. My question is, are you on milk or are you on solid food? we got a lot of babies in here, a lot of infants. A lot of them were just taken over to the nursery. Some may still be in here. And I see all the time the moms taking the bottle and feeding their babies. That's good. That's normal. That's what we do. But how weird would it be if the mom pulled the bottle out of the baby's mouth and stuck it in her husband's mouth? That would be weird, right? A bunch of husbands walking around with baby bottles in their mouth. The husband should be eating El Pollo Loco, right? They shouldn't be eating, drinking baby bottles. <laughs> Or whatever you brought. My, my, my fear is that, that we have husbands and wives, for that matter, walking around with bottles in our mouths. 
by now we should be teaching others. And I'm not talking necessarily a formal setting where you're necessarily behind a platform, although some maybe should be. Um, are you teaching people that are less mature in the faith than you? Or, or you need, uh, as the passage says, it's time that um, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Let me give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, we had a, a, a gal in our uh, marriage ministry, and we were playing this game. It was a lot smaller at the time, so we were playing this game where everybody took a Bible character. You didn't know what Bible character you were. We'd write it down on like a sticky note, and then you put it on their forehead, right? And then they had to ask questions. Is it male or female? Okay, it's female. Is it this person? Is it in, or in the Old Testament, New Testament? Oh, okay, Old Testament. And they asked a bunch of questions, and they tried to guess what name was on their forehead. And she asked about 20 questions. She still couldn't figure it out, so she goes... I don't know who it is. I give up. And she pulls it off and she goes, Jezebel. She goes, who's Jezebel? And it broke my heart because not being legalistic whatsoever, but this is a girl that had known the Lord. I've known her. She'd known the Lord over five years and she didn't know who Jezebel was. That's a main player in the Bible. If you go back and read the story of Elijah in the Old Testament, it's pretty important to know who Jezebel is. I get it. You've known the Lord a month, two months, six months, whatever. You might not know who Jezebel is, but you've known the Lord for five years and you don't know the main players of Scripture. Broke my heart. And again, that's not to be legalistic or anything like that. It was just heartbreaking. Let's not find ourselves in that same situation. So I put it this way. Number one on our outline, there's a lot of doctrine that can be blown to and fro. And we've talked about a lot of it tonight. So number one, to avoid, let's avoid deception by knowing the Word of God. Let's avoid the deception by knowing the Word of God. You know, I, I, like I said, we talked about prayer requests earlier. I read those every week here in Thrive, and I get in, very encouraged when I see a lot of them say, hey, just pray that, that my wife and I would start getting into the Word together. We'd start reading the Bible. I would start reading the Bible. My wife would start reading the Bible. Those are the prayer requests. And I get encouraged, but then I oftentimes think, okay, how's that going? Because, like, for example, if someone were to say, hey, you know, pray for me that, you know, I want to get fit. So my expectation would be then, okay, I'm going to pray that. And I'm, and I'm thinking the next day or at least within that week, they're gonna, I'm going to see them down at the gym, right? They'll be at the gym. They're going to put feet to their prayer. And I want to get fit, so I'm going to be down at the gym. Okay, good. I expect that, right? Or they'll say, you know what? Pray for me. I need a job. I don't have a job. You know what I expect that person to be doing, what you expect them to be doing? Hey, be putting out some applications. Be getting your resume ready. Be doing some interviews. And in the same way, although I'm encouraged when people say, hey, I want to get into the Word, I want to get, my question is now, okay, some of those I've read weeks ago, how's that going? And I hope it's going good. I hope you're going, yeah, man, I've, I've done it. Now I've gotten into the Word. I'm growing. It's crazy how great the growth is. And I hope that's you. And, but if it's not, I'm not here to condemn anybody or anything like that. I just want to encourage you. Let put some feet to your prayer and you say, hey, I want to get into the Word. Go home, pick it up. Like I said, we have daily Bible reading. If you want to follow along in that, you go, oh, I'm already too far behind. No, no, no. You can either start in Genesis 1 or you can pick right up where we are in Numbers, and that's fine. Doesn't matter. God's not mad either way, right? You can do whatever you want, but start getting into the Word and growing that way. Make sense? All right. Well, we've seen that the Sadducees, they deny that there was a resurrection. And like I said, just because they deny it, like me with, with Heather and her pregnancy, it didn't make it any less real. Um, some people, even today, believe that when you die, like Pastor Mike talked about this weekend, you simply cease to exist. Remember, he said it was like a bubble, and you just pop, and that's it. What a way to live. But you know what? The Bible says that there will, will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In Acts 24, you can just jot that down. You don't have to look it up. There'll be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Look at what Jesus said about it in John chapter 5. It's up here on your screen, John 5, 28 and 29. He said this. Jesus talking says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming 
when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Which one will you be at? There's a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of judgment. There's two. And you're, if you're here tonight and you're thinking, gosh, you know, I don't know what resurrection I'll be at. I, I think I'm a good person. I know April 15th is coming up. I'll pay my taxes. I, I coach Little League. I, I, I lead the mom's group. I, I think I'm pretty good. I hope I'm not at the resurrection of judgment. I'd rather be at the resurrection of life. But just in case, what does the resurrection of judgment look like? Because I want to try to avoid that. Well, if you're asking that question, I'm glad you asked. Turn to Revelation 20. This is the last passage I'll have you turn to. I know we've been looking at a lot of Scripture tonight, but that's why we're called Compass Bible Church. Revelation chapter 20, beginning of verse 11. Resurrection of judgment looks like this. It's not a good thing. This is John writing, and he says this. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Interesting. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown or she was thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty sobering. And you read that and you think, well, I don't want to be thrown into a lake of fire. Somebody might be thinking, oh, it's a scare tactic. That is a scare tactic. You should be scared if that describes you. But you're thinking, I don't want to get thrown in a lake of fire. What do I need to do? Well, because God loves you so much and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, he's given us a way to be saved. I'm just going to read it to you. It's not on the screen. You don't have to look it up. You can jot it down if you want. I'll read it to you. If this describes you and you don't want to be separated from God because he doesn't want you to be separated even more than you don't want to be separated, he says this in Romans 10, 9. He said, if you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you stop trusting in your own righteousness and you say, Jesus, you're Lord. You died on the cross for me, and because of that, it says, it goes on to say, and you believe in your heart that not only did he die on the cross, but that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise of God. You will be saved. Let me read it again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I put it this way. Two, two judgments. Number two on your outline we want to secure your spot at the resurrection of life. Remember, there was the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. We don't want to be at the resurrection of judgment. God doesn't want you there either. Secure your spot at the resurrection of life. And then I'll just leave you with this. Um, you don't have to turn back there, but Luke 20, the passage that we read from initially tonight. Remember the bottom, bottom of the passage, he said this. Um, talking about the burning bush passage, he said, remember God said that I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. What I found interesting in the passage, he didn't say this. He didn't say, I'm the God of Jezebel, I'm the God of Pharaoh, I'm the God of Goliath. He has those that are his children and those that aren't. He has those that are sheep and those that are goats. My question is, 
can God say of you, I'm the God of Scott, I'm the God of Heather, I'm the God of Ryan, I'm the God of Kiara, put your name in that blank. Can God say, I'm the God of your name? Let's pray. Hey, God, thank you so much for this passage, um, uh, a timely passage, God. We just want to, uh, we never want to hear words from you like that we're wrong because we don't know the scriptures. Um, God, we want to hear words like, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, yeah, I know we'll hear that at, at, at the Bema seat, but I also want to hear that just on a daily basis. Not that you're speaking to us audibly, obviously, God, but just that knowing that you're proud of us because we are applying ourselves in our aggressive sanctification to, to know you better, to be more like you. You said if we draw near to you, then you draw near to us. And what a practical way to draw near to you is by spending time with you in your word and in prayer and fellowship with other believers like we're doing tonight. So God, you'd help us to do that. Help us to avoid being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Help us to reject these things, God, and help others to reject them that, because they're not from you, as we've seen tonight. And then if for anyone here, and I know in a group this size, God, there's always people, a few at least, God, that don't yet know you. And I pray that Tonight, um, they would see how good you are, that this isn't a message of condemnation. This, you said that you didn't come into the world to condemn the world, that the, but that the world through you might be saved. And so uh, we've just given the prescription in Romans 10, 9, how someone can be saved, that if they'd confess you with their mouth and believe in your heart that, that God's raised Jesus from the dead, they can be saved. And we pray that would be reality tonight for many in this room. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.